tetragrammaton. Okay, okay, so um, when I was a kid, <laughs> yes. I loved fevers. Having a fever. Having a fever for yes. me was really, really being in the crucible. It mm-hmm. was something that where I, my body would change its physiology, it changed its temperature. My brain, my brain chemistry must have changed, and I got super lucid, uh, you know, out of body, um, very interdimensional. And, and I, I remember very specifically, uh, intentionally, not taking the aspirins and the medications when my parents came in and said, you have a fever. I would intentionally not take them so that I could have these, these mystical moments. <clears throat> and some of them really had to do with being aware that, uh, that I wasn't the guy that I thought I was. Yes. There, were, there were other aspects of me that existed simultaneously. And I kind of put that as just a, a dream that was a lucid experience. Uh, uh, fast forward to my life now, um, I, I actually think those are truly other dimensions that we have access to uh, and to live in, those mystical moments really that are transcendent, you know, transcendental of space and time. Um, I would have never thought that as a kid, but uh, my experience now is that I, I actually believe it's the Amazing. truth. Amazing. Yeah. I never thought of this before you said that, um, that I think of fevers as... A, a natural reaction in the body to fight some something that's going on. And I never thought of the mental aspect of it as maybe having some purpose. But now hearing you say that, I wonder, is that part of uh, the the genius of the way the human works is that we can see things when we have a fever that we can't see otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I think that may, may be the truth. I used to call them fever dreams. Yeah. And, and from, I know so many musicians who've written their best songs. Willie Nelson wrote three of his best songs with 105 Fever yeah. in one day. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. And it, so I'm, I'm just thinking it'd be interesting to look into what it could be. What, what is it telling us? And again, never thought about it before. And I, I thought about the fact that it happens but I never thought about, oh, this might actually be an intentional thing. This is yeah. a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what is the latent system in the brain? Yes. What is that latent system that's, that once activated opens the door to other dimensions? That There must be some brain chemistry change. There must be some change in mind. There must be some suppression of certain common neural activity. Yes. And, and I, I really, uh, this is, well, Let's go. Then. Let's let's yes. talk about this yes. because um, when we look at our functional brain scans of people that are in the midst of a, a lucid moment, a, a, a mystical experience, let's just let's just call that that. Um, you have different brain waves, right? And we're just kind of interacting and we're talking right now, and we're in beta brainwave patterns. You know, the brain's got to create meaning and order between what's going on in our inner world and what's going on in our outer world. And there's a lot of sensory information that the brain has to integrate. And so the, the, the meaning between the inner and the outer world through our senses uh, causes our brain to have a certain level of awareness, and that's, that's called beta. You get kind of dreamy. You get kind of imaginative. You kind of relax a little bit. 
and kind of the voice in your head stops talking to you, that, that default. And the brain kind of sees in pictures and images. It's, it's an imaginary state, and that's alpha, right? And so that's when our inner world is a little bit more real than our outer world, right? So in, in beta, our outer world tends to be more real. Um, and that's a good place to be when you want to learn, when you want to create. Um, but we, we've discovered that when people really can get super, super relaxed uh, to the point where their body's resting in a light sleep, it's kind of a sleep, but the person's conscious and awake, uh, that's theta. And theta is a very little activity in the thinking brain. So the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind opens wide open. And what separates that is the analytical mind, and that's where you can reprogram something, right? Because the doors are open now. So in theta, you're in a hypnotic state and you're suggestible to information. So suggestibility is your ability to accept, believe, and surrender to information without analyzing it. To, and you think it's the truth. It actually programs that autonomic nervous system, that automatic system, to make a pharmacy of chemicals that support the very, the very thought that you're thinking. So in theta then, in that hypnotic state, a hypnotist can program people to do certain things because they're actually in that very suggestible state. What we discovered, though, is that when people can get into the state where they're relaxed in their heart, it's the best way that I can describe this, and the body feels safe enough that it can move out of the, the moment of survival where it's always trying to anticipate the next moment based on the past, that it's preoccupied, that if the person can really relax into that present moment, the body starts feeling really rested and starts to trust. Um, and the person's eyes are closed, <laughs> and there's music filling the space. They forgot about the person sitting next to them. They forgot about the pain in their back. Um, they're, they're, and they take their attention off of everything physical and material. And they begin to just open up to energy, to frequency. And, it, and become kind of a level of awareness that's trans, transcendental of anything material and physical. We would say we are pure consciousness. It, there's only one other place information can come from when it's not coming through your senses, and that's from this field of information. So to answer your question, we started seeing the brain going to these super aroused states. And um, the arousal wasn't pain. Uh, the arousal wasn't fear. Uh, the arousal wasn't anger or aggression. The arousal was ecstasy. And the autonomic nervous system, right there, we're talking about a fever now, that area of the brain is extremely hot. And it moves into these very, very elegant, very high states of gamma brainwave patterns. Not a little gamma, not a lot of gamma, not a whole lot of gamma, a supernatural amount of gamma. The whole autonomic nervous system is oscillating at a very, very fast, coherent frequency. And like, like tuning a, a tuning fork, the autonomic nervous system starts moving into resonance, into order. And somehow a latent system in the brain opens up, and now that person is like a radio receiver. Yes. And they're transducing information from the field into profound imagery, an epiphany, a download, an understanding of vision, some integration happens uh, in that moment. And um, their inner world uh, tends to be more real than their outer world, and they're having a full-on sensory experience without their senses. And that subjective experience being captured objectively, and the amount of energy in the autonomic nervous system, not only the amount of energy, but the amount of order, mm. the autonomic nervous system is touching every single cell in the body. And so now 
the nervous system is sending coherent information to all the cells in the body, and that feels like love, that feels like ecstasy, that feels like bliss. So in a sense, the way the fever occurs when a person's in that heightened state where the autonomic nervous system is really hot and the body's really hot, I think it mimics that kind of state where a, a person can really start connecting to information that's beyond their senses, that they're, they're in that world of half awake and half asleep. They're, they're in that place where uh, um, the door's wide open. Is this different than the dream state in sleep? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you see the gamma brainwave patterns and the person is extremely awakened, like the arousal that's producing that feeling, the yeah. ecstasy of bliss, is actually causing them to put all of their attention on whatever's going on in their mind, you know? And so, in a sense, their inward experience is rewriting circuitry in the brain. Mm. And... The end product of an experience is an emotion, but the emotion isn't the emotions we're typically used to. This is this is order. This is coherence. The, the best way to describe it is love or pure love or, yes. or ecstasy or bliss or whatever you want to call that. Uh, and so when the person comes back, I believe, to three-dimensional reality, their spectrum of what they perceive is broadened. We don't see things how they are. We see things how we are. Right, and so they're, now their brain is wired actually to perceive a little bit more of reality, a little bit more beauty in reality, a little mm -hmm. bit some veil, some conditioning, yeah, some so, illusion. So, that, so the outside, the outside isn't changing. We can just see it better. We can see it more clearly. Yeah. And some of our self-talk or story is removed to yeah. get closer to heaven on earth. Yeah, and and uh, so so the person who's had a turbulent past that has been abused um, that has had series of traumas in their life and those emotions cause them to remember their past in that moment the body is feeling so amazing that it's literally dragging the body right out of the past to the person that somehow has some type of upgrade uh, in their biology, some type of transformation, some type of healing some type of, the story is no longer the same story, they don't <laughs> they're not telling that story because the emotion has been removed. They see it uh, from wisdom. They, they look back at their past and they say, I actually don't want to change anything in my past. I would have never got to this moment if I didn't have those experiences. And so there's a forgiveness that takes place from the past. And now I think the person starts really, really seeing a, a greater aspect of reality. Are the memories held in the body? Ooh, okay, let's talk. <laughs> oh, I'd love to talk about this. Um, okay, so um, the stronger the emotion that we feel to some problem, some condition, some experience in our life, the more altered we feel inside of us, you know, when we're changed, that change in our emotional state captures the brain's entire t attention. And we start paying attention to whatever it is in our outer world that's causing us to feel that way. We get a very narrow focus. And you get a very narrow focus, and the brain actually takes a snapshot, mm -hmm. and that's called the long-term memory. And so then people think neurologically within the, uh, the, the, the experience, and they feel chemically within the boundaries of that emotion. How you think and how you feel creates your state of being. Now, the problem is, is that information now is wired in the brain, but every time they remember the event, every time they re review the experience, they're producing 
the same chemistry in their brain and body as if the event was occurring. So their, their body's reliving the past experience a hundred times in one day, okay? So take a thought and a feeling, take an image, a memory, an emotion, take a stimulus and response, and now you're conditioning the body to actually live in that emotional state 24 hours a day. Now, the trauma is not just in the brain, the trauma is actually in the body, and the body is the unconscious mind. It's, uh, it's the objective mind. It does not know the difference yes. between the real-life experience that's creating that emotion and the emotion that that person is fabricating by memory and by thought alone. And the body's believing it's living in that same life over and over again. So now, what's the relevance of that? Well, the epigenetic model of reality says the environment signals the gene, okay? If the end product of an experience in the environment is an emotion, as long as that person is living by the same emotional state, they're signaling the same genes in the same way because the body's believing it's living in the same environment. Genes make proteins. Proteins are responsible for the structure and function of your body. The expression of proteins is the expression of life. Somehow they could actually probably downregulate a certain set of gene expressions that cause them to head to a genetic destiny. So the question is, okay, how about that person who hit, hits the rock bottom? And now nothing in their life is making that feeling go away. No drug, no, no, no sports car, no vacation, no wardrobe is making that feeling go away. And this is that kind of moment of reckoning where you actually start looking at yourself, that you start observing who you are, right? So, so if that thought and that feeling, that image and that emotion, that stimulus and response is conditioning the mind and body to live in the past, is it possible then to be defined by a vision of the future? and begin to fall in love with that vision of the future to such a degree that your body is so objective that it's believing it's living in that future reality in the present moment. And could you signal new genes in new ways that change your body in time? Could you stop downregulating certain genes in the body and start upregulating genes into a new body? And our data shows that that's absolutely possible. It's amazing. It's amazing. And even worse than the personal bad event in our society that can trigger us in that way because of because our species has been around for millions of years we can react to someone insulting us like we're being chased by a lion yeah. <laughs> you know it's like the yeah. life and death aspect yeah. is so so we have oversized reactions yeah. to lesser stimuli in, yeah. in our world yeah. yeah yeah what was once adaptive yes if you were being chased by t-rex that was really adaptive yes has now become very maladaptive because when you turn on that response and you can't turn it off and living an emergency for that uh, that extent of time no organism can live an emergency you're tapping all the body's vital resources yes and and so in time then um and keep our bodies knocked out of homeostasis, knocked out of balance, because that's what stress is. And so the default is always prepare for the worst. Now think about this. If you're preparing for the worst, you're imagining yes. the worst case scenario in your mind, and you're actually feeling the angst, the fear, uh, the worry as if it was occurring. And that thought and feeling, that stimulus and response is actually conditioning the body to become the mind of anxiety. Keep doing that over time, and you'll program it subconsciously, and you'll have a panic attack. 
try as you may to control it with your conscious mind, you can't. You programmed it subconsciously. So the problem with this is that the arousal of those hormones become very addictive. They're a rush of adrenaline that causes us to go on alert, to get ready, to pay attention, to, to, to get stimulated in some way. And so then I think people start to uh, look for the problems and conditions in their life to reaffirm their addiction to that emotion. They need an enemy to feel hatred. Yes. Uh, they need something in their life to feel judgment. And if their enemy died, well, it's just easy just to find another one because it's really the feeling that's keeping them. So they become, and we become, in a sense, addicted to the life we don't even like. Yes. And so then, because of the size of the neocortex in the human brain, uh, we can make thought more real than anything else. The frontal lobe does that. So we can turn on that stress response just by thought alone. Now, if those chemicals are addictive, and you can turn on that stress response just by thought alone, you can become addicted to your own thoughts. And it's a scientific fact that the long-term effects of the hormones of stress down-regulate genes and create disease. So that means that our thoughts could literally make us sick. So the fundamental question is, if our thoughts could make us sick, is it possible our thoughts could make us well? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, if they could make us sick, why not? Yeah, of course. And, 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 and the belief in that uh, has to come with information. Yes. And it has to, you have to reason with that. You just can't say, I'm going to think positively, and I hope my disease will go away. That's, this is changing everything. This is changing more than just that. So then, <laughs> say you're not going to complain Say you're not going to make excuses. Say you're not going to feel sorry for yourself. Say you're not going to judge others. Have that intention. First two hours goes really well, but the body has been conditioned into the familiar past, into the known. And it's the mind. Yes. And it starts influencing the brain saying, hey, <laughs> you've got the perfect reason to judge this person, or tomorrow's a better day to start, or this doesn't feel right. You respond to that thought as if it's the truth. It leads to the same choice leads to the same behavior, creates the same experience, produces that same familiar emotion, and you say, this, this feels right. What's <laughs> interesting about this is when, when I hear you talk about it, it sounds like this is for a small group of people who have terrible problems, but what I'm hearing is this is the default position of most people in society. This yeah. is how we yeah. live. Yeah. You're describing yeah. how we live. Yeah, that's 70% of the time. We either live, so we really have two options then. Rick, we could live in survival, we could live in creation. Now, when you're in stress and you're in survival, it's not a time to create. It's not a time to learn. It's not a time to open your heart. It's not a time to be vulnerable. You're it's not a time to trust. You're protecting. Yeah, you're, you're in the protective mode and it's time to, time to run, fight, and hide. So the best way to divide people <laughs> is to keep them in survival and keep them in stress because you just don't trust uh, in that state. So then, okay, so what does it take to break an addiction? Addiction is something you think you can't stop. Or or you're doing something and you know it's not good for you and you're doing it anyway, right? Yeah, or you might not know you're doing it. And I think in most people's cases, yeah. they don't know this is what they're doing. Yeah. So then so then now you, you decide, I'm not going to be this way. Yes. But the 95% of who we are by the time we're in the middle of our life is a set of hardwired thoughts and beliefs and perceptions uh, automatic habits and behaviors 
and those emotions that we've become addicted to that keep us in the familiar past. So now you can use 5% of your conscious mind to go against 95% of that default that's automatic because you thought the same way, you made the same choices, you did the same things, you created the same experiences, you live by the same familiar feelings and emotions every, every single day. Your life should stay the same because you're staying the same. And, yes. and nothing changes in our life till we change, right? Yes. So, so it just turns out that disentangling from those programs takes an enormous amount of awareness and it takes an enormous amount of energy because just like craving any addiction, you have to be greater than your body and that's what change means. Yes. Uh, to be greater than those familiar emotions that keep us anchored to the past. And by the way, when we feel those emotions, it causes us to remember the past. And the research on and brain function and memory says 50% of that narrative, that story you tell isn't even the truth. Yes. You're making stuff up and people are reliving a miserable life they never even had. Yes. Just to reaffirm the fact that the problem in their life they had to embellish to say how difficult it is for them to change. And so <laughs> it makes sense then that then if a person wakes up and runs through the same routine, and I have no problem with routines, I have routines that I love to do that, that bring me joy. But if the routine is reaching for your cell phone, <laughs> first thing you do in the one, it's 86% of the Western world. And then, you know, going through the same routine behaviors that you always do, and you keep doing that over and over again. A habit is a redundant set of automatic, unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that's acquired through repetition. You do something long enough. A habit is when your body knows how to do it better than your conscious mind. Now, here's the problem. Now you're programmed into a predictable future based on what you did in the past. And the body on autopilot like that, programmed into that future, the body's dragging the mind into that future based on what they have done in the past. And we lose our free will to a set of programs. And so if the familiar past is the known and the predictable future is the known, there's only one place where the unknown exists, and that's the sweet spot of that present moment. And, and to change then is to be greater than the body as the mind, conditioned emotionally into the past and habituated into that future. You gotta, in order to change, you gotta get greater than that in order for, for you to begin to produce some type of change in, in your biology. So it starts by getting into the present moment, being in the present moment without the baggage of the past. And then when you're in that state, you can plant a seed for the future that you want to bring forward. Right. Because otherwise, how could you create something new from the known? Yes. That just can't exist. So the person sits down to do their inner work, and the moment they close their eyes, they start getting frustrated. And they start getting angry, and they start getting impatient. Uh, and they start self-doubting, and then they listen to the voice, I can't do this. Because that's, that's what the emotion is driving the person. To get back to the known, <laughs> get back yes. to the familiar. You know, there's safety there, the yes. unknown, you can't predict it, right? So people give up on themselves, and we're actually curious to see what happens when you actually go past that point. Yes. When you settle the body back down into the present moment, yes. it's arousal, it's frustration, yes. you tell it it's no longer the mind, and you take your attention off that person or that problem, or that memory or that thought, and you are curious what's beyond that thought. That's the unknown. And the act of doing that over and over again is like training the animal. It's like taming the beast, right? And the person says, they're sitting there and they're, and they're working, and all of a sudden they start thinking, oh my God, I got so many emails to do, I got so many places, God, we all know there's so many things to do. 
And most people get up and say, I'm too busy to do the inner work. Oh, okay, well, what if you caught yourself and you executed a will that was greater than that program and settled the body back into the present moment and showed it that in the unknown, it's not scary, that not being certain, that it's unpredictable. It's actually cool to be there. And you keep working with your body like this, like training an animal. Every time you do that, that's a victory. Yes. And sooner or later, the body surrenders to a new mind. And when it does, yes. there's an enormous liberation of energy. We go from particle to wave. We go from matter to energy. And literally, we're freeing the body from the chains of the known. Yes. And the person then relaxing into the unknown and realizing nothing scary is going to happen to them. No, it actually feels good. It feels amazing. Yes. And it, energy moves. We see this on so much of our data. Energy moves right into the heart. And once it makes it to the heart, we know exactly where it's going. It's going right to the brain. And the heart acts as a creative center and it's informing the brain that it's safe to create again. The brain goes right into these beautiful, coherent alpha brainwave patterns and the heart is the creative center. And it's saying, think of a new possibility. <laughs> Become aware or notice something that you're unaware of and see it as a possibility that you maybe actually want to experience in your future. And if the thought in your mind becomes the experience in that imaginary state, you start to feel the emotion of your future before it happens. And you're giving your body a sampling, a taste of the future. Keep doing that every single day, marrying that image and that emotion, that thought and the feeling of stimulus and response. You could actually condition the body to become the mind of the emotion of the future. Now, you wouldn't be waiting for your healing to feel grateful. You wouldn't be waiting for your new relationship to feel love. You wouldn't be waiting for your success to feel empowered or your wealth to feel abundant or a mystical moment to feel awe. That would be, you know, living by cause and effect. This is really you causing an effect. This is the moment you start feeling grateful, your healing begins, right? The moment we start feeling abundant, we're generating wealth. The moment we feel empowered, we're, we're connecting to a future. The moment we're in love with life, we're in love with ourselves, we create people in our lives that way. The, the moment we're in awe of life, we're going to have a mystical moment, you know, and that's causing an effect. So then you get up from doing that, then the creator of your life should see evidence in those synchronicities, yes, in those serendipities, in those coincidences, in those opportunities. So you nod your head in something innate and you wake awakens and says, I actually am the creator of my life. I forgot. I'm too busy believing that I'm the victim of my life. Now, I actually, oh my God, I'm actually believing that I created some of this. Wow. Now it's no longer work. Now it's fun. Now you do it because you want to measure the effects of you at cause. And how long can we maintain this state of being our entire day, independent of the conditions going on in our life, independent of the needs and the emotional addictions and habits of the body, independent of time. Practice that as an experiment, and you should see things coming to you in your life in, in un unknown ways. And, and that's the mystery, right? That's where it gets fun. I could imagine someone hearing this and thinking, this is a form of brainwashing, and brainwashing is scary. But if you start with the idea that we're already brainwashed, you know, we're, we're already yeah. brainwashed in a negative way. What's, what's pulling us down now is a brainwash that we did not sign up for. Right, right. And we're already there. So our goal is to reprogram ourselves yeah, yeah. to get past the old programming that, that we didn't sign up for. We didn't, we didn't right. program ourselves 
intentionally before. Mm-hmm. We made up stories based on, I feel bad, so it must be because of this. We make up a story mm-hmm. to explain it. And then we live with this false belief that this is what's causing our pain Yeah. when we can really think our way out of it. Sure. Well, um, two things. First of all, I, I think that's a, that's a default. I think that's built in. I think we're programmed to be victims in our life. If you say to someone, why are you feeling this way? Why are you acting this way? They'll say, I am this way because of that person, that circumstance, that condition in my life. What they're really saying is that circumstance, that condition, that person is actually controlling their feelings and thoughts. And anything that controls our feelings or thoughts or anything that controls us, we are victim to. So when things are good, we feel good. And when things are bad, you feel bad. And, and so it just there's a lot of agreement in the program of being a victim is that something or someone's doing it to us, right? And so you can make an excuse, you can blame, you can complain. It all makes sense for people who are living by that same energy, that same emotional state. They'll share the same information, exchange the same information because they're feeling the same emotions and energy. So, so that's normal uh, in our lives. But it makes sense, though, then, if you actually are to experiment with your life, if, if I change, is it possible that my life changes? Okay, so let's demystify it. And make it really simple. Your personality creates your personal reality. That's it. Your personality is made of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. So the present personality who's listening to this podcast has created the present personal reality called their life. They're the creator of it. Not their boss, not their ex. They're creating their life. Okay, so if we agree with that, then in order for you to create a new personal reality, then you would have to change your personality. In order for you to change your life, you would have to change, okay? So then how do you change is a really good question, okay? You better start thinking about what you've been thinking about and decide if you're going to accept, believe, and surrender to that thought or not, right? So if you've been thinking that way the majority of your life, then it's a hardwired circuit, firing, wiring over and over again. It becomes more automatic. And you never know that voice is there until you step out of the known and you decide you want to change. Then I can all of a sudden becomes a very loud voice in your head or I'll start tomorrow, whatever that is, okay. So then it makes sense then that you would have to become so conscious of that unconscious thought that you would not go unconscious to it in your waking, that you would never let it slip by your awareness, unchecked or unnoticed. Okay, now that takes energy and awareness, okay. But if I've been behaving in the same exact way and it's become a habit, and a habit is when you go unconscious, then you would have to catch yourself every time you started to speak in a limited way, Every time you started acting a certain way, you'd have to become so conscious of those behaviors that you wouldn't go back into the habit and go unconscious. And so the question is, how many times do we have to forget until we stop forgetting and start remembering that's the moment of change, right? Okay, so then people feel the same emotions every single day. It just feels like who they are, but they never really are aware that they're just feeling guilty or unworthy or sad, or whatever. It's just the way they feel, okay? So now, you want a new life, you can't take those feelings with you if you want to be happy. It makes sense you're going to have to leave those feelings behind and literally stop feeling that way and start feeling another way. And if you react to the same people and the same problems in your life, you're going to feel the same way. You're the same personality because those emotions are going to drive the same behaviors and the same thoughts, and your personality is going to stay stay the same, and your personal reality is going to stay the same, okay? So then, the word meditation, I looked it up. It means to become familiar with. 
to become so conscious of the, those states of mind and body that you actually don't have to go unconscious and, and you could change, right? And that's because of the size of the neocortex and the frontal lobe, we, can, we could actually have this idea of metacognition. We can separate ourselves from the program. And that consciousness is us not being unconscious. And it takes consciousness, it takes awareness, it takes energy to do that. Okay, so still, if you still don't believe this though, but could you then learn a way to think differently and fire and wire new thoughts in your brain and install hardware? And with intention and with attention, start deciding what you do want to believe. And a belief is just a thought you keep thinking over and over again until you hardwired in your brain. Could I have the intention of installing a new belief? Could that be the new voice in my head? How would greatness think today? How would an unlimited mind act today? So then if you said, how am I going to act in my Zoom calls uh, with my kids, with my ex, with my coworkers, with my wife? Is there a greater way that I could behave in this day? What, is the, what does greatness look like? What would love do? And you actually close your eyes and rehearse the action. There's so much compelling data to show that the act of mental rehearsal changes your brain to look like you already did it. Wow. To look like the experience has already happened. Wow. Now, the brain is no longer a record of the past. You are priming the brain for a future behavior. Keep firing and wiring, installing that hardware. It becomes a software program, and you start to behave as that person. No different than the person who's playing an instrument or rehearsing a dance or reviewing their lines as an actor or an actress or a sports figure uh, rehearsing their, their moves. The, the brain actually changes so that it looks like the event has already occurred. Now you have circuits in place to use. Okay, now here's the hard part. Okay, so I want to be happy in my life. I, I want to be grateful in my life. I want to I feel more creativity. I want to feel more, more love. Okay, am I going to wait for something out there to change to take away this lack or emptiness? Or can I actually generate this feeling on my own? If I stop practicing feeling anxiety and frustration, if I stop feeling sad. Now, this isn't positive thinking. This is actually deciding what you want to teach your body emotionally to feel every Programming day. Programming yourself. Conditioning and programming. And if you said, I'm not getting up until I'm in love with life, oh, the game is on, right? Yeah. Now you got to really open that heart yeah. of yours. It's, you're making a commitment. A commitment with intention. Yes. And, and when you assign meaning behind any act you get a greater outcome. And to me, the creative process is getting lost in the act until it creates the experience right in that moment, right? So the person who's practicing feeling gratitude, who's practicing feeling love for no reason at all. Yes. And they can become so familiar with the old self that they can become so familiar with a new self. The yes. word meditation become familiar with. And, and teach your body to feel that way and actually give them the tools to check the feedback if they're actually in that state where the heart is in balance in order to give them the feedback to let them know their brain is in more order, more coherence. If you kept thinking that way, if you kept acting that way, you kept feeling that way, I would guarantee you your life would have to change in some way. And what we discovered in our research is that so many chronic health conditions go away, like stage four cancers, like 
blindness, like deafness, like lupus, like uh, multiple sclerosis, like muscular dystrophy, like spinal cord injuries, uh, strokes, uh, rare genetic disorders. The person, and I know that's hard for a lot of people to accept, but we have the data to show this, that the person's a they're different person. The disease existed the, the, in... The old person had that old, disease. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're reborn as a new person and the new person doesn't have that disease. They'll tell you it's a, that I, I'm not that person any longer. Yeah. I'm somebody else. Yeah. And their biology... So in a way, the disease was a program as well. It was... The, the disease was programmed. I see. Yeah. And so now they're, they're actually... They're, they're, when they're feeling that elevated emotion, something really profound happens. You don't feel separate from your dreams. Yes. I mean, how... Could you feel separate from your future if you feel like it's already happened? That's when you stop looking for it and, and get ready because the experiment gets really interesting. That's when, that's when you start seeing these unknown events or downloads or whatever you want to call it. Start, you start to see so many more things you were unaware of. So to answer that question, for me personally, if you asked me two years ago if I thought that I would be seeing uh, the type of changes in people's health or changes in their life like I'm seeing right now, I'd say maybe once or twice. But now my belief <laughs> in what's possible has changed so dramatically, so dramatically in witnessing common people, yes. like you and I doing the uncommon. They're not monks, they're not academics, they don't have 40 years of devotion. They're just people that are pragmatists saying, how do I do this? And I think science is the language to demystify that process. So combine a little quantum physics with a little neuroscience, a little neuroendocrinology, a little psychoneuroimmunology, mind-body connection, a little epigenetics, electromagnetism, build a model. This is, what we, this is what we're interested in. Build that model of understanding and that information causes people to become aware of possibilities that they were unaware of if they didn't have that information. Yes. So, so information, the right information... If they learn that information and they understand that learning is making new connections in your brain, okay, I understand that, so I'm going to learn this stuff. If remembering is maintaining and sustaining it, then let's do this. Let's build a model of understanding. You retreat from your life. I retreat from my life. We'll build a model of understanding of new possibility with new information. Okay, now now that I've learned this information, i got to remember it, so let's teach it back to each other. Let's, let's build a model, and let's make sure there's nothing left to conjecture, to superstition, to dogma. Let's, let's understand exactly what we're doing and why. So then as you exchange that information and remind yourself of what you've learned, you're reproducing the same level of mind, and mind is the brain in action. So now you're installing neurological hardware in preparation for the experience, the more you understand what you're doing, the more you understand why you're doing it, the how gets easier. Okay, so now give people numerous opportunities to overcome themselves, numerous opportunities to connect. Give them the information away, then give them the instruction on how to. If they get their behaviors to match their intentions, they get their actions equal to their thoughts, they kind of get it worked out and they get their mind and body working together, they're going to have a new experience. Now, experience enriches circuitry in the brain. Now, it's not philosophical any longer. It's not theoretical. It's not intellectual. Now, now the experience is actually reinforcing the philosophy. The moment those networks of neurons string into place, the brain makes a chemical. And that chemical is called a feeling or an emotion. And now, the moment you feel elevated, the moment you feel unlimited, the moment you feel grateful, the moment you feel free... You are teaching your body chemically. 
to understand what your mind is intellectually understood. So now the information is not just in the mind. Now the information is in the body, and you're embodying the truth of that information, and you are literally changing your biology, okay? If you've done it once, you've got to be able to do it again. So if you can re reproduce an experience over and over again, sooner or later you're neurologically and chemically, neurochemically going to condition your mind and body to begin to work as one in unison. And now you are literally becoming more innate. It's becoming more automatic. It's becoming more second nature. You're mastering that knowledge now. It's a, you're moving into a state of being. You're becoming that knowledge. And so when a person actually reaches that point, there's a dramatic change in their physiology and their biology. It makes sense then that there's less, there's, there's less of the past uh, left in their body. So I think it is going from philosopher to initiate to master, from knowledge to experience the wisdom, from mind to body to soul, from thinking to doing to being, to learning with your head, applying with your hands, knowing it by heart, to, to believe, to behave, to become. And I think that journey, people make that, uh, and, they, and they can stand in front of an audience of 2,000 people, and they're the example of truth. They're on the stage saying, I had stage four cancer. It was in my bones. It was in my liver. It was in my uh, uh, lungs. And, and I'm as surprised as everybody. I'm looking at this person. They don't look vegan. Yes. They don't look buffed. They don't look young. They just yes. like, look like a normal person. Yes. And yet they're telling their story and you're looking at them and they're the example of truth. They are the four-minute mile and the collective. Amazing, yeah. The collective becomes aware yes. of Everything's a possibility. impossible yes. until someone does it. Exactly. And then when you start seeing several people do it, we don't even think it's impossible anymore. Yeah. And it's so uh, beautiful that you're demonstrating that you're collecting a group of people who have these experiences so that we can all see them and, and understand what's possible it's unbelievable to me yes it's un i have to i'm literally changing my belief in that moment and this person sometimes their diagnosis their condition got worse yes uh, they lost everything they yes. had a lot of doubt they had yes. a lot of fear um they had a lot of pain and they could have just stopped doing the work but if they did then they wouldn't believe it was possible yes. and they showed up and i said to them why sometimes did you do the work three times in one day? No, they were not doing their meditations to heal. They were doing their meditations to change. And when they defaulted back to that disbelief that they couldn't heal, that's when they, instead of staying there, they said, I got to change my belief. And they wouldn't get up until they were in a different state of being. And it was the overcoming process that was the becoming process. They, they became somebody else. Their, their health condition was their teacher. They would have never become that person, right? Yes. So they stand in front of an audience, and I'm looking out at the collective, and everybody's leaning in. They're, they're, they're listening to truth. And, 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 and when you see the PET scans, and there's, <laughs> there's no metastatic cancer in the bone, I mean, I'm scratching my head. I am, I am so different because of these people. We had a guy with muscular dystrophy, like I've never seen that condition ever change. He walked into a week-long event, and he came in in a wheelchair and walked out. Amazing. He walked out, I could not believe my eyes. Amazing. So just like a infection could spread amongst the community and create disease, I think health and wellness can be as infectious as disease. And so you get a group of people and you start seeing people break through a certain level of consciousness 
or unconsciousness, and they're telling their story to 2,000 people, now everybody in the audience is looking at thinking, if that person can do it, I can do it. So not only is there a footprint in the quantum field of new possibility that exists, but now there's evidence in, in three-dimensional reality. And now sooner or later, someone in the audience is going to relate with that person, and you're going to start seeing more and more of that realized. Is there a typical time frame it takes to reprogram the brain? I have I have seen it happen in one instant. <laughs> really? Yeah, and I have seen it take, or for some people, seven years. Yeah. Uh, some people, twelve years. Yeah. Uh, and it's really it's really interesting because uh, many people say, "God, this this sounds so right." You know, I believe in this information. I saw the testimonials. I saw your science scientific data. I I believed it was possible. I just never thought it was, I never believed it was possible for me. Oh, that's just a really defining moment because if you literally really take that on, that means you got to show up for yourself. Yes. You got to get out of the bleachers, you get on the playing field. And the beauty behind that is that means if you're showing up for yourself and you're believing in possibility, then you got to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, you better be believing in possibility. And so it was the constant choice to show up for themselves and yes. believe in that future over time that they actually became that belief, right? And so and I think there's that, that gives people permission then uh, to try it out for themselves. Um, are there any other mystical experiences from childhood you can share? <laughs> Just fun to talk about. Um, well, let's talk about the, a little bit about the mechanics of it, because I think it's kind of interesting, okay. and then we can lead to Great. some of those fun things. Great. Um, uh, so one of the things that I was interested in, and still am very interested in, is really understanding the mystical. And the word mystical just means unknown, right? Something that's outside of the known, right? And that's usually, you know, any unconventional like that. Is when you step out of convention, you're always considered a little bit of a heretic or a little bit crazy. Um, but when I had those mystical experiences, um, and then as I got older and I had them in college at certain moments, especially if I studied really hard and pushed myself past the point where I really wanted to stop, but I just went a little further and I'd fall asleep and I would, I would have a very mystical moment. Uh, when I started really saying, okay, if I have, those ex have had those experiences and I've known enough people who have, what is it? in the brain that's actually doing this, right? So um, when we started looking at the brain scans and we started seeing those areas in gamma right around the autonomic nervous system, super hot, really hot, and the lights were out in the, the mechanism, the neocortex, you know, that what plugs us into three-dimensional reality, the autobiographical self, gone. Wow. Just shut out. And something was happening that was in an altered state, right? So the area that we started seeing really hot in the limbic brain was the pineal gland. And that tiny little pine cone-shaped gland that's like about the size of a pine nut that sits right in the corner of the third ventricle, um, somehow is always, that area was always very active. And so I started doing the research to look to see what is it about this little mystical center. And I didn't want to just study people that study DMT or, you know, or I didn't want it to be too spiritual or too 
for lack of a better word, 60s or hippie. I wanted it to be like, I want to study the scientists that were like spent their whole life looking at this thing. I have no idea about any of that stuff. But what did you, what would you, you know, what did you discover? And so it turns out that inside the pineal gland, there's these tiny little crystals and they're robohedron in shape. You know, they're six sided, very geometrical. And the articles that I started reading and discovering said the, the pineal gland was a neuroendocrine transducer with piezoelectric properties. Now, I know that's a lot of big words. And so instead of just shelving it, I looked up the word piezoelectric. I learned it in college physics. I just forgot it. And it really is, is that it, when you apply a mechanical stress to a material, the mechanical stress changes into an electrical charge. It becomes electrically activated. So these tiny little crystals that are sitting in the pineal gland, they're stacked up on top of each other, they're very geometric, and they have piezoelectric properties. If you compress those crystals, the compression of those crystals creates a polar charge on each end of the crystal, a positive and negative charge. And when you have a positive and negative charge, you have a magnet. And a magnet has an invisible electromagnetic field. You can't see it, but it exists. Okay, so now there's a principle in biology that says endowment. You don't use it, you lose it. Pineal crystals are there, and why haven't they gone away? They're in most vertebrates. Homing pigeons have them, so they can navigate true north. Chameleons have them to pick up infrared frequency to change their color by releasing melanin in the, in the pineal gland. So we have them too. Like So why do we have them? And they haven't gone away. So <clears throat> if you compress those crystals, the application of that force creating that electromagnetic field causes that field to actually expand as the crystal expands. And then as the crystal can't expand any longer, the field reverses and it exerts another field against those crystals and it compresses the crystals again. And all of a sudden, you have this little radio receiver that's, that's sending out signals of frequency. Okay, so is it possible then that that's the brain's radio receiver that could actually pick up frequency and transduce, and the word transducer was in the article, transducer is a, is a TV antenna that's gonna take the information on that wavelength of that frequency and the information and de-encode or descramble de it into imagery mm -hmm. and a profound experience. So then I started looking for, are there chemicals that are derivatives that could be released that alter brain function. Okay, so I had to go through a bunch of articles. And, um, well, you know, serotonin and melatonin are the common pineal uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, and serotonin is what gives us our experience of daylight and waking, wakefulness and consciousness. And melatonin is the kind of the nighttime neurotransmitter, and that's that kind of dreaming chemical. So is it possible then if the pineal gland actually could connect to energy and frequency like a radio receiver, and pick up frequencies that are beyond our senses, <laughs> beyond visible light, our experience of the spectrum of light, would melatonin still be melatonin? Or could it be an upgraded version of melatonin that fits into the same receptor sites mm -hmm. as serotonin and melatonin carry a completely different message? In other words, is it possible that the physics of the field mm -hmm. connects to the biology of the brain and body through this little radio receiver? So we started seeing these areas getting super hot, the pineal gland getting really hot, and we were thinking, this is, where, this is where the tuning fork is picking up the signal. So then- How are you measuring this? 
we're we're looking at we're looking at real time quantitative EEGs. We're looking at thirty eight compartments of the brain, right? Okay. So um, we actually are getting really good at being able to predict uh, when a person's going to actually go into the state. They they move way outside of normal in theta, so that we know they're open to information. So there are metabolites of melatonin that are, melatonin's already an antioxidant, but now it produces two very powerful antioxidants, very, very powerful antioxidants, anti-cancer, anti-aging, anti-heart disease, anti-stroke, anti-neurodegenerative, anti-inflammatory, anti-microbial. Take it, tweak it again. Melatonin already causes you to relax, but now you're going to really chillax. Your, your brain will make a benzodiazepine. That's Valium, right? Shut off the survival centers in the brain. Same chemical found in hibernating animals. Now, melatonin already causes you to go into sleep, but now you're going to go into a very, <laughs> very deep sleep. And hibernation is no sex drive, no appetite, no preoccupation with the environment. Kind of the lower energy hormonal centers in our body kind of just go into stasis. They just kind of shut off. Same chemical found in electric eels, okay? That's a, that's a high amplitudes of energy in the nervous system. And we're seeing these high amplitudes of energy in the nervous system. And then the most powerful hallucinogenic uh, known to man. So that tri, uh, uh, trimethyltryptamine, that DMT, right? That very powerful chemical. And this is, and this is happening by the radio frequency is changing the melatonin? So, so my hypothesis is that when the frequency that is actually connecting to the brain, now how do you do that? The brain's got to be coherent. The whole entire brain has to be synchronized. It's got to be, what sinks in the brain, links in the brain. Stress causes a disintegration of those networks, right? This is when this, the whole entire brain, the whole brain is dancing to the same music. It's the same symphonies playing in the brain. Now, when the brain is that coherent, it could read, it could read a signal, right? The more coherent the brain is, the more it could entrain to frequency. So... When we see these profound changes take place in the person's brain in that state, and we see these areas amplified, they're having a very full-on sensory experience, as I said, without their senses. They're having a vision, a transcendental experience that seems to be more real than, than the very world you believe is real. And, and that inward event somehow can change a, the biology of the body in a matter of seconds. So if we take the blood the plasma of those people who have that interaction with energy and frequency and that aroused state, we take that plasma and we put it in the presence of a cancer cell, uh, a uterine cancer cell, a, uh, uh, a breast cancer cell, uh, a pancreatic cancer cell. It'll take 70% of the mitochondrial function right out of the cancer cell. In other words, cancer cells need to multiply and move, right? So the mitochondria, the energy centers of the cell, so you're taking 70% of the energy out of the cell. You see this dramatic change uh, in cellular biology. Um, and so the information somehow that, that is in the blood that wasn't there before, yes. that is now there, is not coming from any exogenous substance. The person's not ingesting anything, and we're finding this robust pharmacy of chemicals mm -hmm. in the body's nervous system that, that actually work better than drugs. They, they work better than any pharmaceutical. And I keep asking the scientists, where is this information coming from? Mm -hmm. It's coming from within us. And in seven days, 
people who move through a process of true change and transformation, they engage fully. They immerse themselves in the process. At the end of seven days, their blood and their genes will look like they're literally living in a whole new life, in a whole new reality. And, so and the, the amazing part uh, is the seven days. That's, we show our, our data to scientists and they cannot believe yeah. that those changes are happening in seven days. So for me, the mystical moment can be anything that causes me to have a change in my perception of reality. After I wrote an article for a scientific magazine, to get back to your question, mm. I was a young guy and I had just gotten the article accepted. And I was just looking at all these derivatives of melatonin. And I was asking, why are they there? And could it be related to that transcendental moment? So here's, it, here's the story. So I had just put my kids to bed uh, uh, and I had just cleaned everything up. And I sat down and there was a fire in my living room. And I hear the kids kind of in the other room. And I was saying, hey, come on, I'm going to come in there. You know, and they kind of they settled down. And um, I sat on the couch and I just started looking into the fire. And I think one of the cool things about gazing into fire is that there's, there's no predictability. There's a kind of, a, kind of a, a, a way that it's just kind of causes you to be present. So I kind of was looking at the fire. I thought about all the things I'd do the next day. And then I said, I don't want to think about any of that. I want to think about what I want to think about. And so I was gazing into the fire and I was kind of half awake and half asleep. And I kind of closed my eyes and I started thinking about this article I had written, and I thought, where, I was talking to the pineal gland, I said, where are you anyway? And I kind of fished around in my brain, just with mm -hmm. my awareness, and I said, oh. And the moment I locked into it, it was like a screen opened up, and I saw this beautiful, beautiful image of this gland with its mouth open and this white milky substance flowing out of it, and I just thought, whoa, that could be my pineal gland. And then the scene changes and I see this amazing, beautiful timepiece with a crystal glass surface. And I'm just, this is, I'm lucid now. I could yeah. see the, I could see the very details of the glass and the, and the colors and the shine. And there's Roman numerals on this timepiece. And all of a sudden I see the hands of time, the, the two arms of the, the clock start rolling backwards in time. As it's rolling backwards in time really fast, I'm thinking to myself, oh, the pineal gland is like a biological timepiece that we can move forwards and backwards in time. And then there I am. I'm standing above myself, and I'm, I'm a nine-year-old kid, and I'm laying in bed. And now while I'm having this experience, I'm the nine-year-old kid again. I forgot that I had this moment. Now I'm reliving the moment. Mm -hmm. I had the covers right up to my nose. And at the same time, I'm standing next to the bed looking at myself mm -hmm. as my present self, and I'm viewing some aspect of my past self. So I traveled through time, and I saw a dimension, a, a space. And my mother had just left the room, and she said to my father, he's burning up. And I thought, when she left the room, I thought, yes. And I had the aspirin in my flannel um, pocket of my pants there and I had my hand over it and I thought everybody's finally gone here we go and I close my eyes and now I'm watching myself and I'm living the experience at the same time Amazing. I'm outside of time right yes. linear space yes. time yes. and I'm watching this kid and he's trying to figure out time I'm watching this nine-year-old kid look at time like 
uh, cubes on a three-dimensional checkerboard. And I'm trying to figure out how when you change, how everything changes. I'm in this very deep contemplation in this mystical place as a nine-year-old kid. And I'm watching myself as my present self. And I look at this kid and I fall in love with him. And I think, oh, I'm still doing that. I, yeah. That's, of course, that's me. And yes. I knew in that moment, I fell in love with that kid that he was going to become me. Or I was, I, yeah. I became some aspect of him, an evolved version of him. And the moment I fell in love with him, I knew that I was connected to him and somehow he would find me. I don't know how else to describe that, that my love was going to draw him to me who I was in that present moment outside of time. And I just, I just had this incredible understanding and compassion for who I was. All of a sudden, here comes the timepiece again. And I look at it and it's, it is just luminous. And all of a sudden, I see the hands of time move forward. And I start moving forward in time. I'm traveling through time. Like in three-dimensional rea three reality, we travel through space. Yep. And we travel through space and we experience time, right? In the quantum, you, you, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> there's no space. So you don't go anywhere. You travel through time and you experience dimensions or spaces. So I start seeing the hands move forward in time. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm on my ranch uh, in the Northwest. And it's a beautiful autumn evening. And it is freezing cold and the moon is out. And I'm wearing this very long cape and I'm barefoot. And there is a prism of frozen grass in front of me and the light is coming off the prisms of uh, uh, grass and the whole thing is magical and i am like an upgraded version of myself like i'm in the exalted version of me and i'm walking through the pastures walking towards the stallions and i feel incredibly noble i feel really amazing and my feet on the ground somehow was, wasn't painful, it was pleasure. I was part of the whole, I was, I was wholeness in parts uh, and I, I was connected to everything and the cold was just, I loved it, I wanted more of it. The night was rich and I was walking across my yard into a, this area where I had these big basalt stones and I walked on those stones and when I, the moment I touched the stones, I knew they knew me and I knew I knew them and there was this kind of exchange and I moved over to this fountain that I had built with my brother and. I looked at the fountain, I just laughed, and I thought of when we had built this thing together and how much fun we had. And all of a sudden, I see this radiant woman that's maybe 10 inches in height, and she's glowing in light. And now remember, I was feeling pretty good at that point, and she looked me right in the eye, and she sent me this thought. And I felt this level of love that I had never felt before in my life. And on that, that energy was there's always more love. And I thought, oh my God, like here I am thinking I was doing pretty good. That was nothing compared to what I just felt there. And she looked at me and, and I turned around and then I, well, what am I doing here? And I saw my present self moments before washing the dishes in the kitchen. And I was standing outside of my house as my future version of myself. And I was looking at this guy washing dishes and I'm watching him doing the same thing. He's trying to dovetail concepts and ideas and he's trying to figure things out and he's sincere and he's, I fall in love with him. He's, he, I see his strengths, I see his limitations, I see everything about him and I fall in love with him. And, and while I'm washing the dishes, 
I forgot, but I had this really weird feeling like someone was watching me. So I Amazing. set everything down. And I tried to look out the window, but I thought, I got 10 dogs on the property here. Someone would be going off if there was somebody out there, you know? Yeah. So I went back to washing the dishes and I had that chilling moment. But I think the interesting thing about the whole thing was that the feeling that I felt from that interaction with that being lasted for two weeks. Like the feeling in my heart, that heat, that fullness, it, what, the experience that somewhat seemed outside of this dimension of space and time, yes. I still had the feeling of that feeling. I started questioning what is real. Like, yes. what is real? Is that maybe we're not linear beings living a linear life. Maybe we're dimensional beings living a dimensional life. And I think when the doors of dimension open to us and we get a glimpse that there's an infinite number of you and I's that are existing simultaneously. Yes. I think the game changes. I, I, I really do. So the mystical moment for me is something that I've been working really diligently in demystifying. So those derivatives that are from melatonin, I speculate are the very derivatives that fit into the same receptor sites as serotonin and melatonin. But melatonin can't be melatonin because that's the function of the wavelength of visible light. This person's now have their eyes closed and they're interacting with a frequency that is not visible light. Melatonin can't be melatonin now. It's got to be an upgraded version. So, And then when the brain, brain cranks on like that and it opens up, uh, the effect of their interaction, how energy is informing matter, is actually causing the body to be lifted uh, by a greater frequency. And so we've seen blind people see in that moment. We've seen deaf people hear. I know this sounds crazy. We've seen... In a matter of moments, someone in a, with ALS in a wheelchair just step out of that wheelchair, a spinal cord injury, someone's back on their feet again. It's somehow their interaction with energy and frequency is giving the body an upgrade. And you can't get the upgrade from inside the virtual reality experience. You got to get the upgrade from outside of it. You know? And so the mystical is something that we, we work really diligently on experiencing uh, because that is the unknown. Yeah, and it's only mystical because we don't understand it. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah, exactly. Do you think, do you think that these, um, the things you're talking about are very revolutionary in, in our current time? Is it possible that some of these things are, are lost information that's ancient? Yeah, so um, I, here's, I think that it is, and I don't want to, at all sound egocentric in that because i i keep saying to the scientists i can't believe this is the truth like yeah i can't believe this is the truth yes. like i've been so hypnotized and conditioned that i thought it was outside of my me and here we are we're taking people <laughs> they they haven't even meditated before in fact you're going to do really well because you're going to tell you're going to do exactly what we ask you to do and it's going to evolve right so in seven days novice meditators there's so many upregulation of so many metabolites. There's so many epigenetic changes, so many lipids and amines changing in their body in seven days. These are, these are novice meditators. At the end of seven days, their blood looks like an advanced meditator in seven days. So it's, it, to me, it, it, it's mind-blowing. So, so you, do a, you do a study, a drug study. A drug study is about, at its best, 25% cause and effect. 25% of the people get affected in a, in a really good way. 
our data, when we look at the effects, is between 75 and 85% causality. It works three times better than any drug. And again, the person's not taking a drug. So for me, like, I cannot go back to business as usual. I cannot yes. And there's say, no downside and no side effects yeah, and no... There's, no there's, there's nothing except the person changing, right? And somehow their interaction with frequency and energy, I mean, think about it. Come on, you, we're perceiving less than 1% of reality, and at best, when we're conscious, we can appreciate the sunset. But what about that other 99.999% of the atom that's information, that's energy, that's nothing? Uh, we're unaware of it. There are dimensions that we're not aware of, right? So, so when people start interacting with energy and frequency, frequency carries information. The more coherent that autonomic nervous system is, and you can get it by your heart or get it by your brain. We, we've kind of isolated both ways. When people start getting entrained to energy and frequency, crazy things happen. I mean, crazy stuff. So we have, again, this is important to know because this is, if we don't know it, uh, we, we, we're unaware of it. And if we're unaware of it, it doesn't exist for us and we make the same choice, right? Yeah, can't so, ha- we, can't, we can't engage in it if, can't, we don't, if we don't see it. Exactly. So, so, we took, so we took these people that actually can demonstrate brain and heart coherence. And we discovered that the more relaxed you can get in your heart, the more you'll get awake in your brain, the more gamma you'll have in your brain. Relaxed in the heart and awake in the brain is speaking from my present state of ignorance, the extent of our research that that's when you're not your animal human self that's living in stress and survival that's in a program and unconscious. So you get people to get relaxed in their heart and awake in their brain, and you get them collectively to come together. And resonance is when things appear to be uh, resonating out of order uh, and separate, all of a sudden start to entrain and resonate in order. And human beings do that same thing. So you get 1,800 people together, and now it's not about you any longer. It's about healing somebody else. And if it's true that it's not matter that it's emitting the field, it's the field that's actually informing matter, change the information in the field, could you change matter? So we do that. And we put these random event generators through the entire room, all around the room. And a random event generator is like a sophisticated uh, coin toss. So if the more you toss a coin, the more you're going to get a 50-50% heads and tails. So these are machines that are programmed randomly to go heads, 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 tails, tails, heads, tails, 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 head, head, like that. But it's 50% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's programmed that way. It's a machine, right? Yes. Okay. And there's, it's sensitive to electromagnetism. So set them up around the room and now get a group of people come together and get a collective network of observers to have a very specific intent. They're no longer about you. Yes. It's no longer about me. It's that someone's mother there. That's someone's brother. That's someone's kid. Uh, that's someone's f- best friend, and could we actually stretch the model and see if we change the field, we could change matter, right? And we have data to show that that's possible. When we look at the random event generators, during that time when everybody gets intentional, random events become less random and more intentional. Unbelievable. Almost Beautiful. 100% of the time, the machine behaves abnormally right during that window where everybody's coming together, right? Amazing. And so then <laughs> it is collective networks of observers that determine reality. And it's not the number of people. Yes. It's not the amount of energy. Yeah. It's the most coherent signal, right? Yes. So brain and heart coherence is your Wi-Fi signal. And when you're in your heart and you're out of survival and you're present in that moment, how f- much further 
can you extend the model? So the person heals themselves of cancer. The next question is, can we heal another person? Now we're, we do these coherence healings and we have people stepping out of wheelchairs, uh, people having dramatic changes in their vision, their eyesight, and they look like you and me. Yes. They're, and the people that are doing it are, are opening their hearts and they're getting beyond their identity. That's the only way I can describe it. And that's my definition of creation. When I forget about me, I'm in a good state, right? So get everybody doing that at the same time. You see these machines that are programmed. It's amazing. To behave abnormally every single time. Yeah, so no, incredible. So you, we need to know that in some way. I said to the scientist from Harvard the other yeah. day, tell me, tell me how that's possible. Yeah. Tell me how these non-local changes are happening. We take twins, yes. identical twins. We set them in separate rooms. One's having a transcendental experience in meditation. The other one's watching a boring documentary on laying cable in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And the one who's watching the boring documentary, their heart, <laughs> their heart and brain are behaving like the person who's, who's having the transcendental moment. How do you explain that? You cannot explain that without understanding on some level we are all connected, right? And that's, that's a good model uh, for us to believe in. Absolutely, it's beautiful. Let's talk about um, the difference between meditation while you're measuring versus mm. not. Okay. Measurement. Yeah. Benefits, positives yeah. and negatives. Okay. Um, so, um, we, when we use the model of meditation, I, I, my interest is to make it practical, to demystify the process. The, we were talking earlier about that process of unlearning and relearning, of breaking the habit of the old self and reinventing a new self, pruning synaptic connections, sprouting new connections, unfiring and unwiring, refiring and rewiring, deprogramming and reprogramming, losing your mind and creating a new one, unmemorizing emotions that have been stored in the body, then reconditioning the body to a new mind and to a new emotion. And, Meditation is that inward process where we have to disconnect and dissociate from everything outside of us where there's nothing but you. That's really, when there's nothing but you, when you're aware of nothing but you, that is a very delicate moment of, a critical moment between order and chaos in the brain. So to become familiar with an old self and become familiar with a new self, okay, let's admit it, the hardest part about change is not making the same choice as you did the day before. The moment you decide to make a different choice, whatever it is, it's going to feel uncomfortable. You're stepping out of the known into the unknown. It's unpredictable. It's uncertain. It's unfamiliar, right? It's, it's that place where possibility exists, and most people in the unknown is a very scary place. Stress is created from can't predict something, you lose control of something, you have the perception that something's going to get worse, that's the unknown, you run, right? So for the most part, then, the unknown is a scary place. That present moment <laughs> tends to be the unknown. And if people can relax into it, their veneer begins to broaden and they can now be present. And they're not preoccupied with trying to anticipate the next moment based on the past moment. That's the default, right? So, so we use meditation really to remind ourselves of who we want to become really, and the imagination and the process and giving people the science and the information to be able to do that and practice it is really the, then taking, then rehearsing your lines inwardly, yeah. rehearsing your moves and your behaviors and then get out now and you can't be in that state and then five minutes later default and go back to the old personality. Your life will stay the same because you're the same personality. You got to be able to maintain that modified state of mind and body really well. You got to get so good 
at doing it with your eyes closed, you got to be able to do it with your eyes open. And that's the game, right? That's the game. So we use meditation in that way as the first model. Okay, so we know to change is to be greater than your environment, to be greater than your body, and to be greater than time, to be in the present moment, okay? So what does it mean to be greater than your environment? Okay, you wake up in the morning, and if you're not being defined by a vision of the future, we, for the most part, can say that you're left with the memories of your past. Why? Because your environment is made up of objects and things and people and body and places, Okay, so you have a neurological network for all your kids, for where you live, your cell phone, the places you lived, every part of your body, your identity, everything in your environment that is known to you is mapped neurologically in your brain. So your brain is a reflection of everything known in your environment, or your brain is a record of the past. It's, a, it's an artifact, right? So because you've experienced every one of these people and every one of these places and objects and things, you have a neurological network associated with it, the end product of experience is emotions. So if you had a series of bad experiences with your best friend, you'll have a series of emotions that are associated with them. So for the most part then, the moment you see your friend, you're gonna think equal to everything you know about them, and you're gonna feel the same familiar feelings that you felt about them, and how you think and how you feel is your state of being. And as long as you're staying in the same state of being because your environment is influencing your thoughts and feelings, it's then it's no longer that your personality is creating your personal reality. Your personal reality is actually creating your personality, right? And so it makes sense then, then in order for you to change your response to your friend and how you think about them has to change in order for your life to change, okay? So the environment is very seductive. And most people have become very reliant, uh, we become hypnotized into needing something out there to happen to make us feel an emotion. That's, that's the program in the virtual reality experience. We need, we need, in the simulation, we need an event to occur, and the end product of the experience is the emotion. Nothing wrong with that, and it feels great in three-dimensional reality, okay? All right, but what if you're gonna sit and be defined by a vision of the future, and you wanna create, okay? So it would make sense then that you would have to close your eyes and disconnect from your environment. And you do that, you have less stimulation coming into your brain, and now your inner world can start to become more real than your outer world, okay? And then you're sitting there and you're, you gotta be able to be greater than your body, like it wants to get up, it wants to lay down, it wants to quit. Okay, you gotta know that that's your body just being an, an unbridled horse. You gotta, you gotta work with it, you gotta train it, and, and you gotta keep settling it down. That, that's the victory right there. That's overcoming the animal self, okay? So you gotta be greater than the body. And it would make sense then that in a meditation then, in order for you to focus on really you, you couldn't be focusing on your body or your pain or whatever. You, you gotta get beyond that. And if you're really interested in creating something unknown, you couldn't be living in the predictable future as the brain is living in as an anticipation machine, and you can't keep recalling the past because that's the known as well. So the familiar past is the known, the predictable future is the known. Okay, we said earlier the unknown is the present moment. Okay, so we use meditation as a great way to get beyond your body, your environment, and time. And we discovered that when people take all of their attention off their body, all of their attention off all the people in their life that they identify with no longer be that identity. All the objects and things, all the places they need to be, the places they've been, the places they're sitting, they forget about time in and of itself. 
when they become nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere, and no time. That is the moment they become pure consciousness. That is an elegant moment where they're aware of nothing but self. That, that is the door into possibility right there. That is the unknown. We discover that when people move into the state, there are dramatic changes that take place in the brain. When we live in stress and survival and we're aroused and we're trying to control and predict everything in our life, we shift our attention from one person to another person, to another problem, to another object, to another thing, to another place, to another meeting. All those neurological networks in the brain that have been individualized, related to those knowns, like a lightning storm in the cloud starts firing out of order. And when the brain is incoherent, we're incoherent. And as you said, we get very obsessed. We get very single-minded. We get over-focused. Your brain goes actually into a very aroused, not beta brainwave state, high beta brainwave state, like three times as high as normal beta. So now you're obsessing and you're analyzing your life and your problem within that emotion and you're actually making your brain worse, right? We discovered that when people take their attention off their body, their environment and time, and open their awareness, just simply relax, relax and open up and change their brain waves and go from beta to alpha to theta and kind of rescue them steps to be able to practice and practice opening up that door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind and keep working on their analytical mind. If you're able to do that and we can use that as a model, um, we can see dramatic changes that take place in the brain. So we take a group of people a uh, hundred sometimes, sometimes more. And we do quantitative EEGs. We put 36, 38 stations on their brain. We measure the brain before they come to the event. We put them through seven days of intense training. We measure the brain at the end of the event, and there's dramatic changes in modulation. There's orderliness in the brain. There's coherence in the brain. The brain seems to be way more balanced. Okay, so when you're frustrated, when you're impatient, when you're judgmental, your heart beats way out of order. Okay, so if we practice start feeling heart-centered emotions, could we make your heart beat more orderly? The answer is yes. And so we do measurements of HRVs. We measure what before they start a meditation, if they're going to create, they got to be in their heart. They can't mm -hmm. be in survival. So let's measure to see if you're able to sustain that, not just for five minutes. But let's, let's make it a skill. Let's see if you can do that for... 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Get really good at doing it with your eyes closed. Let's do it with your eyes open. Let's try that out, right? Okay, so now if we do that properly, we also draw blood on 1,000 people or 800 people and we draw blood at the end to see if there's changes in their in thousands of metabolites, over 2,800 metabolites. But let's take some people and let's measure their brain in real time during a meditation. Let's see the, what's going on in the inner workings in their brain and let's look for certain specific patterns that can be correlated. Now, I've learned so much in looking at real-time brains, really. I know the music now that causes people to move into that beautiful, beautiful state of receptivity. I know the sound of my voice. I know the words now that actually can get people further along into this. I'm not saying that like I've discovered anything that anybody else You're but, just but reading the data. We're just looking at the data, you yeah. know. And that's kind of another funny thing because people say to me, are you telling me meditation can do this or that? Or you tell me that? And I say, actually, I'm not saying that anymore. The data is saying that. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I, I can't even say this is pseudoscience anymore. We, my scientists that, that we work with were doubters. Yes. They were huge doubters. They were like, this is not 
possible. And now they're all in, they, they have a little closet in the lab where they all go to meditate. I mean, they see it as medicine. That's how they see it. They, 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 they've, done the, they've done the studies. So, so we look at these brain scans in, in real time and, and um, so many interesting things happen where there's coherence in the brain. And, and this is kind of your world, right? So if you get things coherent and they're in a closed system and waves are orderly, when they interfere, waves start bouncing on other waves and they get resonance. Mm-hmm. And resonance is just a greater level of order where things are more complex and there's more systems within order, right? Keep doing that and all of a sudden you get the brain firing in a level that's outside of what's normal. Like um, the amount of water in the brain when this occurs. Um, so the data says like you, we use about five or four or 6% of our brain when we're just hanging out talking. You feel your legs. You, I'm listening to what I'm saying. You know, there's, there's, mm-hmm. At one time. When you see this moment where they hit this point of resonance that creates this kind of this coupling in the brain. You're looking at 25 to 26% of brain fully hooked up and online, right? So uh, that the person's having a very, very elegant moment. So we look at the real-time scans, and we look to see how we can teach it better, how we can find the right way, find the right music, find the right words. And, of course, it's a never-ending process of discovery, which I, I, I don't know what else to do, what else I would be doing, but, but it really is pretty wild to see. So we measure the microbiome. And we have such an amazing community of people because you got a thousand people in the study, 800 people are giving a, a microbiome sample before and after the event. And our data on, just on the microbiome, just in terms of what's possible and what can change amazing. in seven days, uh, you'd have to change your diet and you'd have to do a lot of really, really big things lifestyle-wise to see some of these changes in the phylum of microbiomes that we're discovering and and. Again, it's, it's incredible data where the correlation between cancer growth and microbiome, there's changes in that and, and response to cancer treatment uh, with certain microbiomes and, and inflammation. And we're just seeing these great changes taking place. And, you know, the idea of the microbiome is kind of like the body's really influencing the mind. You know, it's influencing uh, the mind to do certain things to keep, at, you know, a uh, a community of yeah, cells, ecosystem, ecosystem, and either in order or disorder, right? So, in this case, somehow the mind is influencing the body, right? You're seeing the mind change those microorganisms for greater sense of hosting, a greater sense of of balance. Um, we've worked with um, gene expression. Uh, no doubt, you can change your genes in in four Amazing. days. Uh, we did a study on telomeres and. Uh, we found out that three out of four people, if they did meditation uh, five out of seven days a week, uh, that there would be some lengthening of their telomeres. So three out of four, that's that's pretty good, 60 days. All, are all the tests that you're doing based on guided meditations? Yeah. It's all yeah. guided meditation. Yeah. So, yeah. And so <laughs> the, when we run our events, our idea is like, okay, really simple. There was a Harvard researcher that took a men, group of men in their 70s and 80s to a monastery north of Harvard, and she asked them to pretend that they were 22 years younger, right? Not, not reminisce, but actually pretend that they were 22 years younger. Think differently, act differently, feel differently. Okay. She put pictures of Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedy <laughs> brothers, you know, and Nat King Cole, and you know, created the whole scene. 
uh, to remind them. And, um, and then she did a bunch of measurements on them. You measured their height and their weight, and you measured their cognition and their finger lengths and toe lengths, their gait, their range of motion. So a host of different f biological tests on them. And then at the end of five days in the monastery, she remeasured everything. And their finger lengths were longer, their toe lengths were longer, their brains worked better by 60%, cognition improved by 60%, their gait was changed, um, they could see better, they could hear better, really significant Amazing. changes. So we think of this seven-day event like those men going to the monastery. You can become anybody you want to be, yeah. right? And all you have to do is believe, behave, and become, right? So we do seated meditations. It's important to get really good at getting beyond space and time. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to make your inner world more real than your outer world, and we got to practice getting really good at that, okay? But then if you can open your heart sitting down and you can open your mind sitting down, let's practice it standing up. So let's go out and take 1,800 people and get on a beach somewhere in Mexico at 6 in the morning before the sunrise, yeah. and you got 800 people opening their hearts and greeting the day as the upgraded version of themselves, their greatest expression of the Beautiful. divine, right? And then get in that state standing up like you would do sitting down. Now open your eyes, and now it's rehearsal time. Now you got to embody this person. And how would you walk if you knew that you could heal in one hour? How would you walk if you knew you could change your life in one hour? And so people go fully, fully in. Yeah. And, and so now they're, they're, they're practicing embodying the energy, the emotion, the behavior, the posture, the feeling of who they want to be in their future. And, and we have different walking meditations that are guided based on whatever we're working on, right? So, so then let's, let's stand as it and walk as it so that you get in the habit of walking like that in your life and get real good at doing it with your eyes open, right? So you can practice, right? And, and on the stage here. Okay, so what about the mystical? So we see that the, the greatest number of mystical changes happens when people lay down. And if I can keep them in that world between when they're half awake and they're half asleep and, and kind of touch them here and there, bring them back a little bit and then breathe a little bit and get them right there and then keep having them focus on different things while they're laying down, they'll, they'll have a, a, a profound moment. So we do as much as we can in seven days yeah. and, and really spending the whole time in the monastery to practice becoming who you want to be. So when you return back into your life, you don't default that so quickly and forget. And it's so much easier to forget this stuff than to remember it. So the last thing about the brain scans, we did some fMRIs in San Diego uh, last year, and um, it was really cool to see the neuroscientist talk to me about this because he was showing us a part of the brain in seven days uh, that actually grew in volume. Wow. In seven days, I know it's crazy for me to even Amazing. say this. And it's that part of the brain that is the default system where you actually can catch yourself thinking about or predicting the next moment in the future if you keep practicing not doing that mm -hmm. you know and you can keep practicing returning back to the present moment you'll actually build the muscle <laughs> you'll actually build yeah. a whole new volume a whole new real estate of neurons in your brain that gets you better at that and what we discovered is when you don't expect anything the unexpected is going to happen Yes. We, we know that now to be the case. Yes. And when that unexpected happens, if you look at the brain states in the fMRIs, it looks a lot like a person having a psilocybin experience. They're having a very, very altered uh, experience. And then the modulation in the brain 
It's just more orderly and more synchronized. And what sinks in the brain links in the brain. So the person's more integrated, they're more whole. So again, we have so many things we're interested. We, we have a, a language um, scientist that studies transformation. And, and we're looking to see when, we, when people tell their stories of their own transformation and healing, uh, we're looking at the algorithms of language and the word feel it or felt it is such a the number one word uh, for people to either have a very somatic, like I felt it in every cell of my body, or a very emotional or very psychic experience of some emotion that was different than the emotion that they typically feel, you know, a very familiar, unfamiliar feeling yes. like that. So, so, um, it's so, probably like a feeling of um, coming into themselves that they they haven't known. Do you do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, there's a a. I imagine even though it's a feeling they haven't ex experienced before, there's a familiarity in coming into the, being who they really yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. Their real their yeah. true selves. Well, that's a great conversation, and and so I'm kind of a mystic, and I and I mean one of the things that I really believe in is oneness, you know, wholeness, and I think um, we are wholeness in parts. We're part of the whole, and, and I think the divine lives in every human being. I think the divine wholeness, oneness, one day said, "What if there were many instead yes. of one?" Yes. And this journey to answer the question, "Who am I?" or "Is there anything else but oneness?" is everybody has got to the point where they're so separate from everybody, everyone, everything, everywhere, every time, not connected any longer, that they have their own free will to create reality the way they want and answer the question, is there anything else but oneness? And that's the never-ending process of discovery. So I feel like in those moments where people have those ineffable feelings, that familiar, unfamiliar feeling is a remembering that they came from source, yes. that they came from pure love, they came from wholeness, they came yes. from undivided wholeness, they came from singularities, yes. zero point, universal mind, the unified field, whatever you want to call that yes. invisible field of energy that's connecting and governing all of this material, physical world. And, and so we notice that when people put a lot of attention on opening their awareness to nothing and they're aware of nothing but themselves, mm -hmm. that workshop, that place is such a profound place for possibility to yes. exist. And that and that place where it's themselves may not be themselves singular. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, it may yes. be I am part of this whole. Yeah. Yes. No, that is that is exactly what it is. Uh, we just or had an somebody aspect of the whole. We just had someone send a, a really great testimonial and, and she said, I never knew it. Yeah. But I am I am wholeness. I am yes. that. Like I I know that. And and I think the beauty behind this is nobody's so special to be excluded from it, right? Yeah. But when you when you have that moment where I think everybody has to on their way back to source sooner or later going to run into it. I think the biggest treasure is that you realize that it that feeling is you you didn't get it from anyone or anything out there. It came from within you. And I think that's where we stop looking for it yes. out there. And then all of a sudden, and I see this and uh, after so many week-long events, and I look at people and they're walking meditations and their eyes close and tears of joy are rolling down their face. And I look at them and I know nobody's making them feel that way but them. Yes. Like imagine the freedom we have yes. when we're not relying on anyone or anything. That when you're happy with yourself, you're happy with everybody. 
when you're in love with yourself, you're in love with everybody. I mean, that 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 moment, that person is actually worthy to receive. They are worthy in that moment to receive. I mean, I think the universe only gives us what we think we're worthy of receiving and, and practicing that connection every single day. To what part of my limited self am I willing to surrender to get closer to that greater self, that, mm. that place of source or oneness and wholeness? And I think it's a good journey. How does the unfolding continue for you? Like at the time of the placebo book, that was your first book, yes? Third book. Placebo was your third book? Yes. That's the first one I read. <laughs> well, tell, tell me the whole history of the books. Oh, uh, gosh. So I wrote a book called Evolve Your Brain, The Science of Changing Your Mind. And I think when you, you write your first book, you write to your greatest critic. So a lot of neuroscience, a lot of heavy science. It's yeah. about the science of changing your mind and plasticity, really. Uh, then, you know, after I wrote that book and after I, some documentaries, a lot of people ask me, how do you do it, right? And so I wrote the second book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, uh, How to Lose Your Mind and Create Great a New title. One. I love it. And that's a practical application. Yeah. Really. I think it's a time in history where it's not enough to know. I think it's a time in history to know how. So finally, people are interested in the practical application. Okay, so then we started doing measurements um, right around that time. And the only reason I did measurements, Rick, was because I was watching people step out of wheelchairs. And I was just kind of like, how? Okay, like... What is that? And then I started looking at the science of the placebo and I got super fascinated with the idea, oh my God, I am so programmed. Yeah. I am so programmed into needing something outside of me and these people are doing it without us. We started doing brain scans and HRVs and gene expression tests and immune regulation tests. Trade, trade one a certain emotion for an elevated emotion where your immune system gets stronger, a lot stronger, you know? So we started doing all these tests, you know, just because uh, I wanted to see if you understood the science of the placebo what it is, it's conditioning, it's expectation, and assigning meaning to things. Do you really need the sugar pill or the saline injection or the false uh, it's treatment? The it's the belief. It, it, you are actually selecting a new potential in the quantum field that says I could get better. And if the doctor really works it, you could actually get optimistic, you get grateful. You combine that clear intention with an elevated emotion, you're changing that person's state of being. And the body will begin to anticipate the event and make the exact pharmacy of chemicals equal to the substance they think they're taking. They're making their own antidepressants. Yeah. They're making their own anti-carcinogens, their own, their own morphine, yes. their own dopamine by thought alone. Yes. Okay, so you need, this, you need the sugar pill. Or and the you... right ones, yes. not, not the guesstimation. Exactly. It's the, the ones needed. The, ex the exact pharmacy of chemicals. We just exactly. did a study. Remind me to tell you about this study after yeah. I finished this. So we started seeing the brain scans. We started seeing people with Parkinson's and all kinds of things change. We started doing all kinds of experiments. And then um, my last book was Becoming Supernatural, How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon. And that's really kind of a look into the seven-day week-long events. You know, we've done almost 40 of them now uh, around the world. And, um, and really give people some of the tools and some of the applications uh, uh, of what we've done. Uh, but here's an example of the placebo um, we did a study just recently where we took uh, 70 meditators in a week-long event and divided them into two different categories. In one category, we had these people at the end of certain meditations focus on five proteins and five gene expressions uh, that could actually be enhanced, and they were actually real genes and real proteins. Uh, and then we asked the other 35 or so to focus on these five genes and proteins, and four out of the five were made up genes and proteins. They just made up names they didn't exist. 
but there was one that was common to both of them, right? So when we measured the effects of the people who actually had the intention of elevating the genes that did exist in the proteins, this one particular one that we studied first, this is called serpentine A5, was elevated in 100% of the people. They had no idea what the gene or the protein was. Um, they don't know the molecular formula. They don't know how to make it. Their intellect, and they were, they were instructed to not look it up. They were just, just, there was a little short course in gene expression, and that's what, that's what they were told to do. Okay, so the order went in, and when they put in the order, and there were five real substances, we didn't measure the other four yet, we're still looking at them, but the one that, we were, that was common to both of them that definitely went up. When we put in the fake order, <laughs> where there were four out of the five that, that didn't exist, the autonomic nervous system said, cancel the order, and it decreased the amount of serpentine A5 in, wow. the, in the other studies. So there is this innate intelligence yes. that we cannot overlook. And I said to the scientists, let's think about this, okay? Yeah. Is it possible then if we could raise this, and a person doesn't know what it is, they can raise the dopamine levels. Could they raise their growth hormone levels? Could they change their estrogen levels, their immunoglobulin levels? Is there, if we understand this, what couldn't it work for? People don't even have to know what the substance does. They can just be told what to do. And the autonomic nervous system creates a pharmacy of chemicals yes. to match the orders or, or the intention. So I don't know where we're going with it, but it was interesting to see that, yes, there, there is some type of assignment once accepted that innately begins to produce amazing uh, uh, pharmacies. Yeah. Would you say all illness is psychosomatic? I would say that the majority of diseases are lifestyle. I would say the majority of health conditions are habits, uh, choices, and behaviors. I think a very small percentage is actually inherently genetic. Um, um, but if you think about this, um, stress is when your brain and body are knocked out of homeostasis, when it's knocked out of balance, knocked out of order. The stress response is what your body innately does to return itself back to order, right? So that's an innate mechanism of the autonomic nervous system to maintain order, but if you're being chased by T-Rex, it's not a time for order. It's time to mobilize all the resources for the, for the danger, and that's when the body moves out of balance, okay? So you have physical stress, traumas, injuries, accidents, falls. You have chemical stress, pesticides, pollutants, hangovers, uh, you know, allergies, whatever, um, toxins, and then you have emotional stress, right? And psychological and emotional stress seems to be the difficult one. 75 to 90% of every person that walks into a healthcare facility in the Western world walks in because of emotional mm. and psychological stress. So it seems like the psychological and emotional component to things somehow causes the body to regress back to a past pattern, to a, a past state. Okay, so it makes sense then that if you have three types of disorder, physical, chemical, and emotional, then it must mean you have three types of order physical, chemical, and emotional. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because we've had numerous people come to this work where the 
cancer treatment, the chemo wasn't working, the drug trial wasn't working, the radiation didn't work, the surgery didn't work, the five different diets that they were doing didn't work. And some of them were physicians, some of them were researchers, some of them were single mothers, you know, it didn't matter. But the bottom line is they realized that nothing was changing because they weren't changing. And so when nothing else works and you're doing all the right things physically, and you're doing all the right things chemically, and you're taking your vitamins and your herbs and all that stuff, and you're eating and making the right, but nothing's changing. There's just one thing left, yeah. and that is that emotional response because a lot of people that do this work, and they say, okay, again, I'm going to practice. I'm going to become somebody else, and they really work on it. Um, in the beginning, they notice their pain levels drop. They notice they're sleeping better through the night. Yeah. They notice that they're digesting food better, but they still have their disease. Yeah. The condition is still there, yeah. but they don't say... It didn't work. What they say is, what haven't I changed about myself yes. in order for it to work? So what it typically is, is their emotional response. And remember, the emotion is the end product of the experience in the environment. So if they react to their ex in the same way or to their coworker in the same way, sooner or later, you're going to realize this isn't loving to me <laughs> yes. because I'm signaling the same gene. So now it gets very practical. Yeah. Now they're not saying, okay, let me do my meditation uh, to heal. They're going like, oh my God, I got to remind myself that when I get in the presence of my ex, uh, what would love do? Like, what would be a greater way to be? How could, let me think, what piece of knowledge, what piece of philosophy, what piece of information could I apply? And let me rehearse how I'm going to be so I can have a different experience, evolve my day, evolve my experience today, right? So, so now they start practicing doing it more for the, for the practical application of being able to manage their emotional state, right? Because the default back, the one hour of a great meditation against the 16 hours of living by the same emotion, they can't expect it. They, they, they're not saying it isn't changing. They're like, no, 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 it's me. Yes. Oh God, it's me. I, foo, I spent the majority yes, of my yes, day, yes. I forgot again. Okay. I got to remember, I got to remember now so I don't forget, right? And so, so, the chronic health condition will change a lot of times in the beginning because the person's starting to self-regulate and starting to bring their autonomic nervous system back into balance with their meditations. But if they get up and they're in traffic and they're angry and they're judgmental and whatever else, unworthy, um, you can guarantee then the remainder of their day, they're back to that old personality. So as people begin to overcome the emotions, I, I think um, when you master your emotions, you master your creations. You know, I think that's the way it is. And I think when you overcome the emotions that are connected to the past, a memory without the emotional charge is called wisdom, and you're ready now. You're ready for a new game. You're ready for a new opportunity. You know that you know now, and uh, that your response to the memory or to the condition no longer has that emotional charge. You're, you got the wisdom now, and now the soul's ready for the next adventure. It's for the ne ready for the next dream, the next creation, you know, because you can't, you can't go to that future so if you're hanging on to the emotion of the past. I don't care how positive you think. You could say, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, I'm free, I'm unlimited, and that thought is going to stop right at the brainstem, and the body's saying, no, you're not. You're miserable. You're unhappy. <laughs> it's not going to make it into the body. So then... What is the state that you get your body into that it can receive information? And we discovered gratitude just happens to be that emotion because the emotional signature of gratitude, when you receive something, when you just receive something, when something favorable is happening to you or something amazing just happened to you, the emotion you feel is gratitude. So the emotional signature of gratitude is something just happened, really wonderful, or something 
is happening to me really wonderfully. So it's signature is receivership, right? So get a person to get beyond their hatred, uh, their impatience, uh, their anger, their suffering, and stop feeling those emotions, start feeling gratitude. The body is so objective in a state of gratitude, it actually believes the condition is changing when? Now, now. So, so the body starts moving out of that state of imbalance. So I can't say that every uh, disease is uh, created in a certain way. I can say that you can have a gene, and we've seen this, for a certain health condition and never signal it mm-hmm. because you're managing your inward state so that you don't signal that gene by feeling that same emotion. And I think if you, you can program it to work for you if you keep practicing it. I think the last thing I want to ask, this is a good one. I'm excited about this. I can't wait to hear what you're going to oh, say. No. <laughs> is, um, is there a limit to what we can train ourselves or program ourselves to be able to do? For example, by location, levitation, uh, know all knowledge. Mm. Are, are there any boundaries to where we could go with this? Hmm. <clears throat> so I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. I'm yeah. a very practical yes. person. So um, I think it's a never-ending process of discovery. I, I think it's has to be methodical. Um, the person who truly really says, okay, I created this health condition, I have to uncreate it. It's a chilling moment when you you have to do that by yourself yeah. and, and nobody's believing in you but you, right? And and if you don't show up, it means you don't believe in you, so you gotta show up, right? So yeah, that, that has an enormous amount of uh, energy and awareness. But let's just say the person goes through a process and they start healing themselves. As I said, the experience of healing yourself produces a new, a new feeling, a new emotion. That's, that's the end product of it. You love yourself more, you, you feel blessed, you feel your life, you get, you're, you're looking at beauty now in life instead of pain, right? So a lot of times when people have those transcendental experiences by their own personal transformations, Next thing is, uh, can we heal somebody else? And, and, and we now know that we can. In fact, I was with a scientist the other day, and I said, when in your lifetimes did you think you'd be talking about coherence healings and the effects per, on, on inflammation, on pain, on, on, uh, on, on insomnia, how, how, that work just as well as a drug and the person isn't even being touched? They're like, we can't believe it. Okay, so let's get a group of people together and give them the science about the quantum physics about how matter is created and see if we could really have them change the field and if they could change matter. Now we have, as I said, we have so many testimonials. We have so much great data on that. We know that it's insanely powerful. Okay, so COVID happens and now a group of people say, all right, let's evolve our model. Um, In the quantum, there's no separation, right? Mm -hmm. So do we actually need to be in the presence of the person to do the healing? Can we evolve our model a little further and do it remotely? Mm-hmm. All we need is a target. Mm-hmm. We need an image. We mm-hmm. just need a symbol. And we can collectively connect beyond space and time to that person's field, right? Is it possible then that we could produce those effects remotely? And the answer is Yes. Of course. Of course. And we have the data (laughs) now. We have the data to suggest that's possible. Now, here's the important point. You can't truly 
believe or even ask the question until you have the experience. Yes. Because the experience then opens you up to something you never would have thought of because without the experience, you're unaware of it, right? So the experience now has caused people to go, oh my God, we're actually healing people remotely. We've got the data, we got the gene expression, we got the microbiome now, we got all this crazy data. Like the answer is yes. Okay, so then let's keep building that model even further. Yeah, what's next? What's and and next? let's see, is, do I think theoretically it's possible? Levitation, uh, disappearing and reappearing? I Theoretically, absolutely. Are we, are, are we that good yet? No. Yeah. But is it, is it possible? Yes, it actually, yeah. it actually is, in fact. So then I think we have to, we have to if we're going to go to the moon, yes. we got to get really good at the process and, and keep stretching the model so yeah. what we do now is we do these advanced follow-ups to answer your question yeah. and i build a model that's way outside of that model that they're typically used to but these people are not just going down the slopes uh, once a year they're they're actually going down the slopes every day yes. so they're they're doers uh, they do the work let's build a bigger model let's see if we can produce the same biological changes as a result of that well, we just need one we just need one, yeah. and one means it's possible. Mm -hmm. And of course, so theoretically, my interest is to be able to see how far I could evolve that model uh, in in my lifetime. Fantastic! That's a yeah. great. I'm I'm excited to see where I'm I'm ecstatic with where you've gotten so far, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. I mean, as I said, I keep telling the scientists, like I can't believe this is the truth, and and. And, and not in a way that like I've discovered the truth, it's just that we're discovering yeah. a part of the yes, truth yes. Uh, that's, I think is really so valuable. And so, so then the person who participates in their own treatment now by managing their emotional state, by, imagine, by managing their own thoughts uh, and catching themselves speaking in certain ways, uh, I, I don't think we have any idea uh, where we're going. Here's an example. I was interviewed for this documentary a little ways back, and, and I, I can't keep track of all of the healings, you know, like, but I, but I, they send them to me because to me that's feedback that yeah, we're, we're making a difference, right? So I'm doing this documentary, and <clears throat> the, 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 the interviewer had just been with the scientific team, and she, she said, and have you heard of this woman so-and-so who, who grew her thyroid back? I know this is insane, and I'm on the, I'm on camera, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> like I frowned and scowled, and I was like, can, can, "What do you mean?" No, she, you didn't hear about. It? You don't know. Anything. I said, "I don't know." What are you talking about? No, she grew her thyroid back. Go, what do you mean she grew her thyroid back? She grew her thyroid back. I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm on the camera, yes. like arguing it. with her because now my belief, yeah, is being too much. It's stressed. I'm like. No yeah, way. How can that like, be? <laughs> how is that possible? Then, you know, that bothered me the whole day. Like, I kept thinking, how in the world could this person grow another time? So, I hear the story that she had uh, a lot of really, really intense symptoms, uh, you know, with, with a thyroid condition. She went to the doctor, big tumor on there, took the tumor out, and she, the doctor said, You're going to be on this drug, which for the normal, yeah. for what's natural, yes. that's the truth. Yes. We study normal. Yes. But somehow she just was not going to accept living on a drug yes. for the rest of her life, that somehow she was going to work on changing that outcome. And uh, so she did the work every day, and she just the right personality type that 
got fully into it, and um, and then she started having all these symptoms. And she, uh, she went to her doctor, and uh, the medications that she was taking were driving her values way too high. So the doctor said, come off your medication just to see what your values are. So she comes off the medication, and her, her thyroid values are within normal limits. So the doctor says, it's really great. And then, you know, in a matter of time, how, how could that how be? Could that be? Yeah. So they sent her for a scan, and there, there's the thyroid, right? So... <laughs> So, Regeneration, re, I love like, it. like, because I think the information about everything physical and material is in the field, and that 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 the information about a thyroid, in terms of frequency and energy, exists in the field, and it's the field that creates matter, right? So, is it possible that you can change information in the field, a pattern, a blueprint that could actually cause a hologram? to appear yeah. in three-dimensional reality. So, so you have an experience like that. I, I watched the testimonial 10 times. I had to watch it because I could not believe it. Yeah. I watched the testimonial of the kid that came to the event with muscular dystrophy in a wheelchair. I watched it 50 times. I kept, this guy was so incredibly full of life he was so authentic. He was on his feet. He was saying, my, I, I, I'm on my feet. My, my balance is next level. I, I have no doubt. I had a tiny doubt. I have no doubt now what's possible. I have no doubt. Like this, he had his moment. You know, he had his moment. So I had to watch that, that particular testimonial over and over again. And I never got tired of watching it. I heard it differently. Every time I listened to it, it was, I was changing my belief. I love when the scientists run the same study five times in a row, or five different ways to try to disprove it, and we keep getting the same outcome. I know. Yeah. I know they're changing their belief in that moment. So I think, I think if you have human testimony, there's, there's nothing like a good story. Mm -hmm. And you have science that's actually supporting... You can make your brain work better. You can make your heart work better. You can make your genes switch on. You can strengthen your immune system. You can change your microbiome. Uh, you know, we have, you could change energy in the field. You can change outcomes, you know. And you have that kind of evidence in, in science and that evidence in testimony. I think evidence is the loudest voice. I think people are looking for that right now. And so we only do the best with what we think is available. Yes. And to become conscious of what's possible. And see that four-minute mile. But I, yeah, I love that you ha you get to have that experience of disbelief of like that, that can't be. Yeah, you know, I love that. Yeah, I love that. It keeps me up at night. And it's I, fantastic. I, and it's it, fantastic. And, and that causes me to ask greater questions exactly. about scientific studies that we want to do. And boy, you should sit in on some of those conversations in the scientific studies and and just really, really, I. I want to know how is this possible? I love it. I want to know how it's possible. Why is that important? Because the mechanistic model needs an upgrade. It yeah. it, 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 it it no longer uh, has the same value it once had. There's got to be a new model that's put into place. So what's the side effect of this? Well, we're talking to uh, the medical school at the university that we're doing our research with. They're asking us, how do we teach this mm -hmm. to doctors how do we bring this into the operating room do we have intention 
Uh, do, we, do we elevate our state? Um, can we connect to the patient? Can we, can we hold an outcome? You know, like, God Beautiful. bless us. Beautiful. If this, what's possible. If, if this model actually changes, there'll be care introduced back into healthcare. You know, it'd be, it'd be something else. And, and, um, and again, if we're just kind of at that infantile state, but, but I think each experience then causes us to change our belief uh, in what's possible. And, and I think... Um, it builds on itself. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. I want to ask, in the placebo book, you told the story of an accident you had where you rebuilt your spine. Mm. And you didn't have you as a teacher to guide you to do that. Mm. How was your life that allowed you to make the choice of not listening to the surgeons who only know one way and to believe that you could heal yourself. And you did. <laughs> How did it happen? Uh, okay, so um, when I went to undergraduate school, it was pre-med and my head was very much into the academic world. Um, but I, I started doing yoga and martial arts uh, instead of doing traditional sports that I had done my whole life, uh, just because I just ran into a couple people that were just a little different and somehow it worked for me. And so I just started reading uh, a lot of different sects and, and um, it opened my mind up. And, and I was passing through, a, I was taking an abnormal psychology class. I was passing through the, the, the lecture hall there and I saw on the uh, the corkboard, when I used to put those things on the corkboard, learn while you sleep. And I was just like, whoosh, I just ripped that thing off and I thought I'm taking 21 credits a semester, 19 credits a semester, I'm nuts. Uh, if I could learn how I could sleep, that would help me out. And so it was about hypno self-hypnosis and how, how to program your, your mind. And, and I had uh, two, three different college roommates that were subnabulous. They were sleep talkers and sleepwalkers. Wow. I mean, they were deep state guys. They what would are the talk, odds? They would talk to each other while they were sleeping. Unbelievable. And I was reading all these books on hypnosis, and I thought, I bet you I could hypnotize these guys. And I would hypnotize these guys all the time, and it was just it would just turned into this fun thing. And I read every book on hypnosis. And so when I went to graduate school, I thought I, was, I picked up the book "Autobiography of Yogi" by Paramahansa Yogananda to drive down to Atlanta. And when I was reading that book, um, I was interested also in the idea of being able to go through graduate school, go to class, and instead of my my, my mind wander, I want to pay attention one hundred percent. And I want to learn everything in the class so I don't have to study, so I can do things that I want to do, like get my black belt and do other things and do yoga. And, and so I started practicing really programming my mind to pay attention and to learn so I didn't have to take notes. And I would review the lectures in my mind, and, and I practiced that way. So then I'd read a reference before the test, and I was good, and I was able to have other time to do other things, like wow. like, like the things I wanted to do. Great idea, by the way. <laughs> no, great idea. And, and I, I got better at it as yeah. I did it, and then I, just, I realized that you could do it. So then I decided that I wanted to, to, um, to do something with hypnosis, so I went to the Hypnosis Motivation Institute in Norcross, Georgia, while I was going to school, and took, my father would have killed me if he knew this, but I took my student loan and I put it towards this, this was getting clinically certified and there were four levels and I was only going to do the first level and I wound up doing all four levels till I was a clinical hypnotherapist and then I basically just had a great uh, uh, way to 
practice while I was going to school and I started working in this holistic healing center and I started working with fears and phobias and learning and memory and gifted and talented kids and bulimia and everything you could imagine, alcoholism, smoking. And I started seeing like people change in like in a matter of seconds. And I was just kind of like, what the hell? Like, what the hell? But at the same time, reading Paramahansa Yogananda and some of these yeah. spirits, I'm like, isn't these guys doing some type of hypnosis where they can actually program their, their mind and body to do things? You know, how does the sand swami stay buried under sand with his head down for three months? Like, well, where's, what's happening there? So I had this interest in the mystical East at that time, a 19, 20-year-old kid. And at the same time, I had this, you know, strong interest in kind of the mind and psychology and all that other stuff. And so I started doing yoga, like three hours a day, like from four in the morning till seven in the morning. I was crazy. And I just wanted to really figure out what the yogis knew, the breathing, the whole bit. And, and, and um, so I went through, I got my martial arts uh, black belt. I, did my, I had a yoga studio and, and then I moved to San Diego. And, um, and then I just got exposed to a whole world that I, was, I, that I didn't really know about. And I started doing triathlons. And I was in this triathlon and, and I was in the biking portion of the race and the, the police officer was kind of like egging me on. He was waving me on to make the turn, but he had his back to the oncoming traffic. And I was passing these two cyclists on the turn and because he had his back to the oncoming traffic, he didn't know that there was a, a four-wheel drive Bronco going. And so when I made the turn, the moment I made the turn, I got just catapulted out of my back, bike by this car going 55 miles an hour. And so I landed on my back and, uh, and I broke six vertebrae in my spine. And, uh, and so the typical um, procedure for that is Harrington rod surgery. The problem was the top vertebrae, the, the sixth, the eighth thoracic, thoracic vertebrae was, was more than 60% collapsed and the neural arch uh, where the spinal cord passed through had kind of broken like a pretzel. So I had, you break those columns of the vertebrae, the volume goes somewhere. So I went back on my, my, my spinal cord and, and I had a kind of compression of the cord. So, uh, the excruciating pain. Uh, I couldn't feel it really. I felt pain in certain places, no. but I had a lot of sensory and motor problems at the time. But I mean, I, it did hurt in a lot of places. Um, and so the typical surgery is to screw off, just cut off the back parts of the entire vertebrae. In my case, it would be the base of my neck to the base of my spine, and then take these stainless steel rods and administer them into the spine. And as you drill them into the, into the matter, it could cantilever the spine off the cord, and, and then you could hopefully function. So they said, you might be paralyzed uh, the rest of your life. You're definitely not going to be able to do anything you used to do. You know, I'm a 20-something-year-old kid, and I'm just thinking... Oh my God, my life is over as I know it. I was very active, you know, and and very doing living a great life in San Diego, you know, and and so um, we got four opinions from four of the leading surgeons in Southern California, two in Palm Springs, two at Scripps Hospital in San Diego, and definitively they said Harrington rod surgery, or you probably won't walk again. So I just remember um, watching this one doctor watch me take my time and not making the decision as quickly as he thought I should. And I think in the 80s, you really didn't tell a doctor, no. No. Yeah. You just don't say that. So luckily I had this sweet, sweet Italian father that was just supportive of whatever I would do. So um, I had all my friends around, and I was getting my last opinion from the surgeon, and he was like, yeah, well, maybe we can put 
eight inch stainless steel rods in your spine instead of 12 inch and maybe leave them in for a few years and take them out and put four inch stainless steel rods. And I, and I was just like, oh my God. And I said to the doctor, don't you think that would limit motion in my thoracic spine? I was doing yoga and martial arts. He said, oh, you don't have any motion in your thoracic spine. And I looked at him and it was a moment something clicked and I was like, oh, maybe you don't have any motion in your thoracic spine. But somehow I thought, oh my God, I, I don't know if I want a carpenter in there kind of putting things together. Now, I'm not saying that Harrington rod surgery isn't indicated, but this was yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. No, and, very interesting. And, and interesting. So, so he said something that you not, knew not to be true. Yeah, he said, you don't have any motion in your thoracic spine. He was about 100 pounds overweight, 200 pounds overweight. And I just thought, oh my God, I can reach back and grab my ankles. Like my back was super flexible, right? I was very into yoga. So something clicked and I was like, I, I know a lot about the spine. I just, I can't do this. And, um, and so I had one night where I had to make a decision because if you wait past this point, then they have to cut you open from the front and the back. And it was just a crazy thing. So... I think the worst of human suffering at times is indecision. So I was weighing what I knew against what I didn't know, really. And I couldn't find any evidence of anybody doing it. And um, you know you're in trouble in your life when all your friends, and these were doctors and people that I knew, were surrounding my bed. You know when you're in trouble in your life when people pat you on the shoulder and they say, we know you'll make the right choice. Yeah. <clears throat> Which really means I'm so glad I'm not you. Yeah. That's what that means. And so wow. for me, I was just, I was like, I just decided like, I saw so many amazing things in seeing people with in self in hypnosis heal from all kinds of things. I saw instantaneous changes in people's uh, mind and body, and I was just like, "I gotta roll the dice. I amazing. gotta roll the dice." Right now, I was—I don't know if I was young enough or arrogant or something about me. It was just, and of course, they thought well, I you had, had seen enough. You—you you had seen enough things that didn't make sense. Yeah. To the that wouldn't make sense to the doctors. You saw it happen. So you had enough experience. Luckily, you took off that flyer and luckily you studied hypnosis and luckily, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's like you, you, you were the right, you were in the right place at the right time for this thing to happen. Yeah. I, I, and then I, and then I, and then I checked out of the hospital and the doctors thought I had a head injury. They really wanted to do a brain scan on me they thought yeah. i had something wrong with me that, because you wouldn't do the surgery right, right and and um and so i thought two things okay there's an intelligence within me that i know uh that's way more intelligent than me that's giving me life mm -hmm. uh it's present with me all the time maybe i'm not present with it mm -hmm. um i know the body can heal but i know that in this case if i heal in the normal way I may or may not have all my body, bodily functions back, but what if I could give this intelligence a template, a yes. design, a plan? If I can give it some orders and stay really present with it and make sure it knows exactly what I want, and when I'm clear, then I'm going to surrender it, this creation, what I'm creating. I can't do this. I'm going to surrender it to a greater mind. Um, could, could I possibly reconstruct my spine? I know this was kind of crazy in the 80s, and then I thought... And I'm not going to let any thought slip by my awareness that I don't want to experience. Now, that sounds theoretically really easy, but when you're in crisis, it's impossible. You, you tend to focus on yeah. all the things you don't want to have happen and all, instead of all the things you do want to have happen. So I started the process, and I thought that it was just this mirror that, was, that I had to look into that was present. And I'd have to, I would reconstruct with, with uh, a trowel. Like I was like building a wall, I'd reconstruct every vertebrae 
in, in my mind and do the next one. And every one was different. I studied the shape of each one. And, and then I would start off and then my mind would go to, what if you're living in a wheelchair? Should I sell my home? What do I do about my practice? And then I would say, you're focusing on what you don't want to have happen instead of what you do. And I start all over again because I, that's not this, what I wanted it to see. I wanted to give it the right thing and I wasn't present, right? So yes. then I would get angry, then I get frustrated and then wow. it would get worse. Wow. And it would take me hours and hours wow. to go inward and reconstruct it. And when I was done, I was never satisfied, you know, so I was always bothered. And, and uh, so, eight, so six and a half weeks uh, of doing this, uh, I, was, I, I, was, I was a mess. Six, it was the darkest night of the soul of my life, you know, I, 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 and, and uh, six and a half weeks, I wasn't noticing anything, right? And all of a sudden, I went through the entire rehearsal in my mind without breaking my attention from the start to the very end, and it felt like I just hit a tennis ball in a sweet spot, something, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, like whatever that was. Wow. And from that point forward, it got easier. Wow. Because it was taking me three hours, two and a yeah. half, three hours to do it. Because every time I lost my present moment, I'd start over again. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I was learning how to be present in the process. Yes. And paying attention is being present, right? So if my attention wandered, I wasn't present, right? So I figured it was omnipresent, so I had to be present with it. So I kept starting over again. And then if I got you know frustrated, now I know, or impatient, I was in beta brainwave patterns, and I was making myself worse. So... After six and a half weeks, I just realized that nothing was changing. I kind of didn't care any longer if it was going to work or not. I just kind of relaxed into it. And what took me three and a half hours took me 45 minutes. It was yeah. just, I was, somehow was firing and wiring the whole time. And then I started noticing like changes in my legs. Like, Incredible. And, and the moment I noticed the smallest, the smallest, smallest, tiny, tiny change, the moment I noticed that I knew I was on to something, then I was like a dog on a bone. I was like, okay. Now I'm going in yeah, with more intention. Feedback. Yeah, as soon as I got the feedback, yeah. I was like, "Oh my God, I know oh, something happened," and I was patient with myself, and I forgot and didn't want to. Didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to focus on whatever I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then I started imagining, "Oh my God, I would love to get on a surfboard again. Oh my God, yeah. I'd love to see the sunset. Yes. Oh my God, I'll never take lunch for granted again yes. with my friends. I want to if I could sit on a toilet again. If I could wash myself in a shower. Oh my yes. God, like I was selecting possibilities and I was excited and I was emotionally embracing. Yes. I think I started, my body started believing it was living in that future reality in the present moment. And then 10 and a half weeks I was on my feet. Like it was just Amazing. like something happened. And, and I was, I was, they had this big cast that it had made for me. And I, when I, I just remember the day I just decided to walk. I just knew it was the day I just got up and I went over to my buddy who was sleeping with his wife in bed and I tapped him on the head. He jumped out of bed and I said, I'm, I'm going home today. I want to go home. And he was like, wow. You know, and so, um, so during those lonely nights, uh, during, those, during that dark night, uh, I just made a deal with myself. And the deal was if I was ever able to walk again, I'd spend the rest of my life studying the mind-body connection and, and mind over matter, and that's what I did. And then I think, you know, after initiation like that, uh, after a wake-up call like that, I couldn't go back to small talk any longer. I couldn't go back to things yeah. that I just, I wasn't the same guy anymore, you know? So, Incredible. And so, so I just thought, is there anybody else that ever had anything like this besides me? And so I started studying spontaneous remissions. And I started studying people that were treating conventionally or unconventionally 
that were staying the same or getting worse from chronic health Incredible. conditions, and all of a sudden they got better. And now here's the weird part. I started traveling to countries to talk to these people, yes. you know, and really listen. I thought I was going to yes. hear about a diet. Yes. I thought I was going to hear about something in particular that was common to all these people, yes. some type of whatever. Yes. And none of that was, none of that mattered. It was totally had to do with their mind. Incredible. It totally had to do with their mind. And so then I thought, well, wait a second. Let's find out the common things. Yes. Once I know the common things, why don't we teach it to people and see if Incredible. we can produce the same effects? Incredible. And so that's so, so. So I realized that they were what the four things were and how they changed. I thought if it worked on those people, it should work on other people. And what what about people that are well? What if they started changing? And instead of waiting for a disease Amazing. or diagnosis, uh, could it begin to change their lives uh, in some way if they changed? You know. So that kind of started the journey, and 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 nothing happened for a period of time, and then. And then it started happening in the stories of transformation that are, are happening right now. Uh, it, it's wonderful to see that other people are having the same experience and it's becoming kind of a new normal, yes. kind of uh, a new way, you know? So uh, that's the exciting part. So for me, um, God, I don't know if the worst thing that happens to you is the best thing that happens to you. I don't know. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, thank you so much for doing this. Such a pleasure talking to you. 